Welcome back to Let's Talk Reform. I'm Antoinette Charles. This week, we'll talk about the relationship between drugs, people, and policing with Marisa Perez, Director of National Affairs at Drug Policy Alliance. We dive into criminal justice reform through a legislative agenda. What is the war on drugs? Why should marijuana be decriminalized? And why are people of color targeted and arrested at alarming rates? Welcome to our educational series, and thank you so much for joining us today. And before we begin, we would just love to know a little bit about you. So do you mind just going into detail about who you are, where you come from, and kind of just the background before actually getting into your law career? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. My name is Maritza Perez. I'm originally from a small town in northeastern Nevada called Elko. Um, I'm a first-generation American, and I think that experience really, uh, you know, informed a lot of my politics. You know, I grew up in a really small conservative town uh, that had a lot of immigrants, but I also saw that immigrants were treated as second-class citizens. And I remember from a very early age just being really angry about that and understanding that that was wrong. Um, so from when I was a kid, like, I just knew that, like, I... I was really passionate about justice. I was really passionate about people being treated equally. And I was very cognizant of marginalized communities because that's the community that I came from. Um, I'm also from a really, really big family. I have um, four brothers, four sisters. I'm the only person in my family who, uh, at least from the older generation who went to college. So I'm also a first generation college student, definitely the first person in my family to get a professional degree, first lawyer in my family. So a lot of first generation cred um, that I have. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. So Maritza, I did a little bit of background checking and just kind of getting to know a little bit about your professional side. And I saw that you did Teach for America. So how did that role as an educator influence your role into transitioning in your passion for law? Yeah, so I actually did Teach for America in between college and law school. And I did it because Although I knew I wanted to go to law school, after my fourth year, I was just exhausted. I didn't want to do another writing assignment. I didn't want to open up another book. I was just so spent after four years of college where I, I wanted an academic break. And I knew I would need one because in law school, just like med school, it's, it's really intense. And I knew that that would be like a huge academic commitment. Um, so I thought, you know, I'll do Teach for America. It'll be a break. Um, little did I know that it was really one of the most challenging things that I've done. Uh, you know, I, another reason I did it was just because I've always been passionate about giving back to the community. I also knew I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. So I, I thought, you know, education is one of like, it's a huge civil rights area. So what better way to learn about education and equality than being in the classroom? Um, so those are some other reasons I did it. Um, in addition to the fact that I, I really wanted to, um, be a teacher of color for students of color because growing up in a small rural town, I never had a teacher of color ever. And I always thought, I always kind of felt robbed. I always thought like if I had had that, maybe I would have had a teacher who had talked to me about honors classes or Ivy League schools, you know, like things that I didn't get. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I was able to do that for other youth. Um, so I loved that experience. It was very, very difficult. Um, it was a, it was two years 
Um, after the two years, I really felt that I couldn't do it for another year um, just because it was really, really challenging. But it did expose me firsthand to a lot of inequalities in our education system and, you know, inequalities that uh, people from like lower incomes generally face. Um, so I, I was really grateful for that experience because I really think, you know, I had a good background going into law school on, on a civil rights issue, which was something that I wanted to pursue in um, as a lawyer. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What kind of lessons did you take from your experience teaching for America to law school? And how did that sort of influence the career trajectory? Yeah, so well, I guess like, you know, the first thing that struck me about my experience in Teach for America is that I, I grew up low income. I grew up going to low income public schools, but I grew up in a rural place and I didn't understand like that disparity between like rural poor and like, like urban poor, right? Because I always thought, you know, I, I went to like the low income public schools, but I had better schools than what I saw in, in my experience with Teach for America. And I think that was shocking to me because I thought I would see something that I was used to seeing. Um, but like, I think that was, that was like a huge thing first was like, I don't think that people know how bad some of these schools are in terms of like just how poorly funded they are and what an injustice within, within you know, just that within itself is terrible. Um, so I think that was something that was most, most startling. It really opened my eyes to that. And I think a lot of people just don't realize the inequity that exists in this country. And that was something like, you know, I continue to share with people because I think it's really important. It's something that we need to, to change. Um, but also like working as an educator, you do see things like how like socioeconomic factors like really um, influence a person's path. You know, one thing that I thought of was just how easy it is to get caught up in the juvenile justice system or how easy it is to get caught up in the criminal justice system as you like become older. Um, so it really started to awaken me to like the school to prison pipeline, which is something I hadn't really thought of before becoming a teacher. Um, you know, and, and that's certainly like why in law school, I, I focused on the criminal justice system. And I also like participated in fellowships and clinics where I got to study the school to prison pipeline. Um, I think my experience as a teacher really just influenced that. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. So you mentioned that you work in civil rights law, right? Could you tell us what you do? Yeah, so I, I used to, I should clarify that I used to. So when I started my legal career, I had a Soros Justice Fellowship. That's a criminal justice reform fellowship. So most of the time out of law school, if you're a public interest lawyer, you get a fellowship. That's really how you get your foot in the door. Mine just happened to be this criminal justice reform fellowship. Um, and I chose to do my fellowship at the Mexican American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, MALDEF. It's a Latino civil rights law firm modeled after the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So it's the same type of model. Um, they do impact litigation, but they also lobby on different civil rights issues. Um, so I was in the DC office and I, I got in just at the tail end of the Obama administration, which is really exciting because that was when there was a lot of energy around criminal justice reform issues. Um, so through that fellowship, I got to work on things like uh, clemency, helping people get out of prison who were there for you know crazy drug charges. Um, I also just got to advocate on issues that I'm passionate about like ending the war on drugs, disproportionate representation of Latinos in the criminal justice system, um, strategies to end mass incarceration. Um, so that was the bulk of my work when I, when I started at MALDEF. My fellowship ended uh, about a year and a half into it, and then I joined full staff. 
As a full staff legislative attorney, I worked on a variety of issues, including education, which is again where my teaching experience really was helpful there. Um, voting rights, immigration policy, employment rights, judicial nominations, in other words, fighting for who is on the federal bench, um, in addition to criminal justice. So I definitely did have a full plate while I was at MALDEF, um, but I wanted to go back to just really working on criminal justice issues. So after about two and a half years, I left MALDEF to work at the Center for American Progress, a progressive think tank. And there I was a senior policy analyst for criminal justice reform. Um, and uh, while I was there, I, I started to work very closely with Congress on different legislative pieces, um, on different um, advocacy initiatives, uh, specifically around marijuana policy, policing, prison, and sentencing reform. Um, I was at CAP for about a year and a half before landing where I currently am. I'm at the Drug Policy Alliance. I'm the director of the Office of National Affairs, um, which just means that I um, uh, really control the legislative strategy of our organization. So a lot of our job is lobbying members of Congress to do the right thing on our issues. Our whole goal is to end the war on drugs, which is like a massive undertaking. Um, but you know, that's that, that's what I signed up for. So even though my background is an educator, but also a civil rights lawyer, currently I, my role is more of a legislative director. Okay, that is amazing. And we really do appreciate the work that you're doing for our community and country. So in your opinion, how would you explain to the common person what the war on drugs is? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so the, I guess the war on drugs describes the government's war, you know, a lot of people like to say it's a war on people because it really is. Um, if you look at the, if the, this country's history, our very first drug laws were uh, created to target people of color. So our first laws, our first anti-drug laws on the books were opium laws. And those laws were targeting Chinese immigrants in the 1800s uh, in California. After that, we saw marijuana become criminalized. Um, and that was, uh, really because Mexican migrants were, were using marijuana, so we wanted to find a way to, to criminalize them. So we made marijuana illegal. We saw the same thing with cocaine. Um, in the 1930s, it, was, it became criminalized because we were targeting black men in the South. Um, it was like the Jim Crow era. So we've had a history of literally legalizing substances that people of color use. But not only that, like they're the ones who, uh, um, even though everyone uses drugs, like if you look at just like who uses drugs, people of all demographic groups actually use drugs at the same rate, but only people of color are really targeted and punished for that drug use. So when we think about the war of drugs, I just think of it as, you know, the government throwing all of these resources to criminalize substance use, some of which I should say is not problematic. Um, at the Drug Policy Alliance, we think that people should be able to use drugs if they want to. You know, it's, it, it's people's bodies. As long as they're not harming anybody, they should be able to use drugs. The, the problem is when people use drugs problematically, we also try to throw the book at them and, and throw them in jail and prison and think that's going to solve the problem. When what we should be doing is making sure that we have substance misuse treatment available and on hand for people who really need it. This treatment should be affordable. It should be accessible, it should be culturally responsive, and it should not destroy a person's life. Because what we, what we like to do in this country is, again, 
punish people through the criminal legal system. But that does nothing for somebody who is uh, who needs help for substance misuse. And for people who are, uh, you know, who are involved in drug activity, either because they were doing it recreationally, um, or because they were, or because they were um, trying to like gain something economically out of it. Either way, like, you know, we're not meeting their needs if we're throwing them in jail. If people are selling drugs, it's probably because they're having a hard time finding a job uh, through through the legal market. And I think that's a reflection of our policy failures as a country. But yet we spend millions and billions of dollars on enforcing drug laws. Um, and it's nonsensical. Like we still have a black market for drugs. You know, like drugs are illegally sold every day. Uh, we have plenty of drugs. In fact, like the US is a huge drug consumer and that's why we have drugs coming in and out of the country. So the way we've approached drugs has always been through like this criminal racist like lens, but it hasn't been through a public health lens and meeting people where they are. And that's what, what we really try to advocate for and, uh, you know, and try to try to get Congress to wrap their, their minds around at the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, but, you know, the drug war, I think people should realize that it's, it's expansive. So when we talk about the war on drugs, we're not just talking about the criminal justice system. We're talking about collateral consequences. So drug use can lead to you being evicted from your home. It could lead to you losing your job. It could lead to even somebody losing their children. Um, you know, drug use is often an excuse um, to like target women of color and, and put their children in foster care. So it's a huge apparatus, but it, what it basically comes down to is that we have demonized drug use without really understanding or trying to understand why people use drugs and we're failing. If you look at our overdose rates, they're insane. They're through the roof. If you look at um, violence associated with drug use, again, like it's, it's, it, nothing has been done there. So I think the government needs to reflect and ask, are we properly using our resources? If we've, we've, we've thrown millions and billions of dollars and, you know, killed how many people and the, the problem remains. I think we just really, really need to like drastically rethink drug policy in this country. Okay. And that perfectly leads into the next questions in terms of what is the relationship between policing, drugs, and prison? Yeah, so, you know, it's an um, interesting moment right now with all these conversations around defunding the police and uh, reforming policing. It's something that we certainly stand behind. Mm -hmm. um, we've long advocated for decriminalizing drugs because drug, because criminalizing drugs is just another excuse for the police to harass people. As I mentioned earlier, people across demographic groups use drugs at similar rates, but people of color, black and brown people in particular, continue to be the face of drug use and the people who are imprisoned for drug use. You can look at marijuana, for example. Even though white and black people use marijuana at the same rate, black people are four times more likely to be arrested and jailed for marijuana use. Um, and while you know legalizing marijuana is a good start at addressing racial disparities, we know that that's not enough. So again, so while we say that like you know we should decriminalize drugs because it will it will give the police uh, less of an excuse to target people of color, we also have to think about other things like just decriminalization itself will not work. We have to make sure that people have healthy, happy lives. We have to make sure that like people have a living wage, that people have a safe 
home to go to every night. The people have food on the table. So these are all like policy decisions that our lawmakers really need to take seriously and understand how all of these issues are interconnected. And then of course, if you, if you, um, first of all, if you're a person of color, you're more likely to be policed in this country. If they find contraband on you, you are more likely to get the book thrown at you. Um, you know, data tells us that people of color are just punished more harshly by the system. So while a white individual might have the benefit of a diversion program, black and brown people often don't get that benef benefit of the doubt. They are sent to trial, they are served with a sentence, and then we know that that comes with many collateral consequences. You could lose your job, your housing, uh, your familial ties. Um, there's a lot that comes with that. So, so that's, really the, the, that's really the connection there. Just kind of like to go back and feed into what you were just saying is, is that I was also reading a paper discussing how over 90% of the Black people who do get arrested do not go through trial because they go with plea deals just because of the fear that they may receive longer sentences. So mm -hmm. I literally did not understand that magnitude because um, just when people were discussing like Black on Black crime and you know, they're saying, oh, well, uh, Black people also do blah, blah, blah. But then, like, when you look at it in the grand scheme, if you're in that neighborhood, you're going to have crime against people within that neighborhood. And that goes for any other neighborhood. So yeah. it's just that's a really good point. Like what people need to understand is that violence is largely interracial. That means that the people, people who are going to hurt you are most likely to look like you. And that's because we live in a segregated society. Like the people we interact with usually look like us, right? So we could say the same thing about white on white crime. I think it's something like more than 90% of people who are killed by white people are killed by other white people. You know, I think it's just a way to like debunk the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. Most violence is interracial. People need to understand that. And with plea deals, yeah, that's really, really tragic. And I, and I think that's another thing that people don't really comprehend about the system. Most people don't go to trial. It's really uh, expensive. That's another thing, right? Like most, most people who are caught up in the criminal justice system are poor. Like you can't afford to like pay a lawyer or to extend a trial, like extend your uh, involvement in the justice system through a trial. And then also prosecutors will scare you with like, well, if you don't bargain down, you could be facing like 50 plus years, you know, so they're going to take, when they assess the risk, they're going to plea out, which is unfortunate because I think that's why we end up with a lot of people with long sentences who shouldn't be there in the first place. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, the way that the system operates doesn't make sense, but mm -hmm. the way that you laid it out logically. I want to go back to what you said about holistic solutions that are based in communities and public health. Could you tell us a little bit about how black and brown youth are disproportionately impacted by drugs in their community? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think it just goes back to all the things that, you know, we've, we've already talked about. I think a lot of black and brown youth in this country grow up in communities that are just underinvested. Like we don't have uh, like the resources that our neighbors do. Um, and there is a variety of reasons for that, but most of it is just a divestment because of racism, in my opinion. Um, you know, and, and when you don't have those things, of course, like you, you face different decisions. I think the tragedy of it is that, again, while 
black and brown individuals do use drugs. Everyone uses drugs, but it hits us different. Like, you know, we have the police on us. Like we are the ones who have to deal with the, with the criminal consequences where other folks might not have to, um, you know? So I think, I think that's really where the, the, why the disparities are most tragic. It's, um, we're already like facing an uphill battle and that's certainly true of the criminal justice system. So once um, someone from one of those communities enters the criminal justice system, what's different that they would experience that someone who's say white would not? Mm -hmm. I'm, so one thing that I immediately comes to mind is that uh, they just face longer, black and brown people face longer sentences, like literally for the same crime, we, are, we just face longer sentences, whether that's because the judge decided to be harsher or the prosecutor decided to be harsher on us. Um, like study after study shows that we are just meted out like way more intense uh, consequences for the same crime. Um, also like how we're treated once we're in the facility is also distinct. Um, solitary confinement where people are kept isolated um, whether it be because behavior or to keep the individual safe. Um, it's actually been deemed torture um, by many countries around the world. Uh, we still use it quite often here in the US. And again, that's something that disproportionately affects black and brown people. Um, but you know, I think it just goes back to seeing black and brown people as inherently more criminal and more dangerous, something to be afraid of. Um, we see it in, in the school to prison pipeline, right? If you think about who is disproportionately impacted by that, um, it's perception. It's, it's uh, you know, and it, I think it's like what we see with these conversations around police reform. It's, you know, like, unfortunately in this country, the color of your skin does affect a lot of your life, including how people treat you and what people think of you and even the punishments that you're doled out. Out of curiosity, does that disproportionality in sentencing have anything to do with representation on the bench? That's a really good question. Um, so I kind of think about that in the way that people say, like, if we had more diverse police officers, people wouldn't get killed by the police. I think it's beyond that. I feel like the system is uh, not something you can diversify into functioning in a fair way. I think a lot of it just needs to be scrapped and we need to start over. Um, I don't think a diverse police force means we're going to have less people killed by police. No, it just means we'll have black and brown people killing black and brown people. <laughs> um, and with judges, you know, I do think that it's super important to have judicial diversity. In fact, it was one of the things I worked at, worked on at MALDEF. Um, so I do think it's helpful, but it's not the answer, again, because I think the system just needs to be revamped. We need to do away with mandatory minimums that tie judges' hands. So even if a judge was someone who wanted to do something right, they might not be able to because the person in front of them is subject to a mandatory minimum because of a drug charge or something like that. So I think we needed to like, just look holistically at criminal justice reform if we really want to get to the problem. And yes, judges are a part of that, but simply diversifying the bench isn't, is not enough. That makes sense. It sounds like a massive systemic issue. So yes. where do you think we should start with this? Hmm. Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I think we really start by decriminalizing drugs. I think that's the answer. I mean, if you look at, you know, if you imagine the prison and jail system as uh, like as a pie, drug convictions are 
a fraction of that pie. They're certainly not like the reason why most people are entrapped in the criminal justice system, but they're still a significant proportion of why people are trapped in the justice system. So I think by decriminalizing drugs, we could start to chip, out, chip away at people being criminalized in the first place. The way I always think about it is, you know, my job is to, you know, make sure that no new crimes are added to the books and then we start to take things off the books. You know, I just think about like ways to minimize contact with police, ways to minimize contact with the criminal justice system. I think drug decriminalization would go a long way in doing that. And not only because it would reduce contact with the criminal justice system, but I think if we were able to talk about drugs as a health issue and really get, make sure that like people had treatment or if they didn't need treatment, if they had like the resources they needed to li live healthy, productive lives, I think that could just like kind of reset our brains and the ways that we think about uh, other things that we criminalize. Um, you know, I think we, we rely on the police and the criminal justice system for, for things that are kind of insane and like don't belong there. And I think starting by decriminalizing drugs would help us like start to really rethink the ways that we dole out justice in this country. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to episode three of Let's Talk Reform. I'm Maria Dange. This time, my colleague Antoinette Charles and I talked with Maritza Perez of the Drug Policy Alliance about the disparities in drug policy enforcement, and specifically how children of color are targeted and arrested at alarmingly high rates. To learn more about the Drug Policy Alliance's work and to sign on to their legislative advocacy, please check out the link in our podcast or YouTube video description. There are also other measures you can take to get involved. For instance, if you live in the Washington DC area, consider joining the Commitment March, which is on the 57th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s iconic I Have a Dream speech. It's being led by the Reverend Al Sharpton, the National Action Network, Martin Luther King III, the NAACP, Attorney Benjamin Crump, and the families of police brutality victims, as well as several labor leaders, clergy, activists, and civil rights advocates. If you do end up going to the march, please be sure to maintain a safe distance from the other participants and please wear your mask. We look forward to hearing from you about your experiences at the march and about your future legislative advocacy efforts. Next time, join us as we talk about the education system in a more in-depth perspective. We're gonna join Dr. Howard as he talks about the importance of mentorship in black children's lives and Latinx children's lives and in the lives of all children who are disproportionately at risk for incarceration. Let us know what you think by leaving a comment, subscribing, liking, or leaving a review. Thank you so much.